from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Monday, the 30th of October. I guess it's the beginning of Christmas season because we're going to talk about a book you need to buy for Christmas. I don't know that much about the Marvel universe, the world and the comic books, but we're going to learn about it today. There's a new book out. We have two of the authors with us, and we're going to discuss the entire world of Marvel all of the business aspects, and maybe you'll have some great ideas because of this conversation. For me, I don't know these stories. I know sort of the Pixar and the Disney pieces, but I don't know the Marvel. And so I'm excited to fill in some gaps in my business education. Maybe that's applicable to you too. Let's get started. I am not a comic fan, as you all know, and I have not seen that many of the movies we're going to talk about, if any of them. But there's a new book out, and we need to talk about it because it's one of the major economic forces out there now, certainly in the entertainment space. And it's an amazing example of entrepreneurship in action. And we have to give equal time. We did Pixar's CFO, so it's time that we talk about some of the other competing brands. Let's talk Marvel. So the new book out that I mentioned earlier, just a couple of minutes ago, and let me throw out the name again, MCU, the reign of Marvel studios. We have one of the authors with us, Gavin Edwards. He's a New York times bestselling author of 13 books, including the Tao of Bill Murray. Uh, I love Bill Murray. He has also written a book on Samuel L. Jackson, calling him the coolest man ever. And a great book on Mr. Rogers. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Gavin? I am very well. Thank you for having me, Jim. How much fun was Taylor Swift's airplane? You got to ride. <laughs> was Taylor there with you, or was it just I, her plane? No, I was on Taylor Swift's airplane the first time she ever rode on a private airplane. She was uh, still just a teenager. I was writing a feature about her for Rolling Stone, and uh, like she was at a phase in her life where just everything was very exciting and new. It's like, wow, I'm on MTV. Wow, I'm on a plane. Like, you know, and you could tell even then that you know, sort of, it's like I don't know what her career is going to be, but you could see that she was a huge talent, and like you know, she was not going to just go away. So. Uh, I, I never could have picked that she was going to become the biggest star in the world. What is her talent? I think um, uh, her, uh, you know, the way I thought of it back then um, uh, was uh, I said, um, you know, sort of like I could see her becoming like Elvis Costello uh, or she could become uh, Faith Hill, meaning that she could become like a mainstream country star. Or she just could become like a bitter, intense personal songwriter. And in fact, her uh, talent is that she turns out to be really good at both. She's an amazing, you know, sort of pop star, like in the public eye, but it's all the whole reason it exists is because she writes like fabulous songs. And, you know, you put those two things together and you get a juggernaut. I can only think of Dolly Parton as a comparison. 
Yeah, and uh, the, you know, sort of like, and I think, to, like, you know, uh, Dolly is a national treasure, and I say this with, you know, sort of like, you know, all respect to the Queen, but like Taylor's laughter, uh, that you know, sort of like Dolly never had, uh, you know, sort of like the sort of sustained impact you see now of, uh, you know, sort of like touring the nation and selling out, uh, you know, sort of stadium after stadium after stadium. I would love to date her, but damn, I'm afraid as hell for anyone who dates her. I, I would hate to date her on second. Thought. I mean, you know, you're just going to be lampooned for the rest of all time, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing uh, that, you know, sort of like, on the one hand, you're going to be in a song that, like, you know, sort of people will remember for decades, and, you know, sort of like, you're going to be sort of like, uh, you know, like, uh, immemorialized. On the other hand, you may not come off well in that song. <laughs> so, you know, it depends how fearless you feel about that. You know, it would also prevent or present a great framework for a book, you know, to trace the music of Taylor Swift through the loves of her life, you know? Absolutely. Yes. I'm sure uh, that I'm, book will be written one day. It's just so obvious. It's remarkable uh, that, you know, there has not yet been a really good Taylor Swift book. Um, and, you know, like I have at least one friend who is, uh, uh, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of cooking one. But, you know, given how huge she is, you would think there would be about like 20 of them by now. Well, you're the man to write it. Well, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> but, uh, you know, sort of. It's uh, a. It's, Go ahead, finish up your thought. No, no, just saying, you know, sort of like uh, sometimes things uh, happen that you don't expect to happen, and this MCU book was one of them, so you never know. There could be surprises. Well, let's talk about the MCU book. It's uh, October 30th today, so I guess the official Christmas season starts tomorrow, and I was told this is the book of the Christmas season for all of us business people, people who like business books and business thrillers and business bios, the barbarians of the gate world, the MCU. And I got to tell you, I don't know that much about this story. I follow business use pretty, pretty closely. I watch what happens sure. at Disney. I was, you know, shocked that Chopek got put in there or Chopek at Disney. I was thankful when he got fired, you know, just a year later, um, you know, I, I pay attention to all that. It seems like the Marvel stuff, business stuff, hasn't been covered as much. It's not in, as much in the the mainstream. What are your thoughts? I think that's totally true, and I think part of it is just you know sort of like for a while now it's been part of the Disney Empire, so it's just sort of not as exciting to talk about it as like you know it's one quadrant of you know sort of Disney World domination. But I mean, it was, uh, doing this book, I learned uh, so much about just sort of like the origin of Marvel Studios, and it's a fascinating story. Um, the, the comics company was in and out of bankruptcy uh, for uh, the, quite a while. And, you know, sort of like it would, uh, got bought uh, by, you know, sort of like uh, Icon and it was being like stripped down for parts. And then this guy, Ike Perlmutter, um, he uh, runs, uh, you know, he used to be just sort of like a, you know, sort of guy who sold, uh, you know, sort of like odd lot stuff through his stores in New York City. He had a huge stake. He bought a distressed toy company, and with that toy company, he took over like Marvel Studios when it was in bankruptcy. Like he convinced like the banks, like I'm the the guy who can do this, and then they just sort of like bootstrapped that, uh, you know, sort of step by step. 
into you know sort of like a profitable company where the uh, the toys are kind of like running the show and at first they're licensing out the characters for things like X-Men and Spider-Man but then this uh, guy uh, David Maisel um, you know sort of like came up with a plan and said you know like you are leaving so much money on the table here's how you actually like build your own studio and you know sort of like really racking the money so uh, it's uh, for me uh, just sort of like an amazing like business uh, story case study and wrapped in superpowers <laughs> and it's gone full circle right didn't ike get canned in march like six ike did ago. get canned and, so, and david's I mean, also gone too right yeah, David left early. Um, that you know, once he uh, they engineered the sale to Disney, he said, "I've I've done what I want to do. You know, sort of, I've punched my card. I'm uh, getting out." Ike has always been super reclusive. Uh, that you know, sort of like he even showed up for the uh, premiere of Iron Man, like sort of in disguise on the red carpet. He didn't want anyone to take his picture, uh, but he uh, you know, sort of Marvel Studios doesn't exist without him. But one of the big, you know, sort of like stories in the book is the conflict between him feeling like he knows what to do and trying to run things from New York and doing it from the uh, perspective of, I know what works for toys, the same thing is going to work for movies. And then in uh, California, you you have a bunch of uh, people, most notably uh, Kevin Feige, who's running the studio, and he is actually... You know, did not grow up on uh, comic books. He was just like a film nerd, but he immersed himself in the world of Marvel Comics and turned out to be really, really good at making these movies. Who was that? What was his name again? Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige, okay. That's spelled F-E-I-G-E, right? That is correct. Okay. So where did Kevin come from? And Is he sort of the guy that we need to give the thanks to all the movies? Is he? Yes. Absolutely. So Kevin grows up in New Jersey. Total film nerd, you know, sort of like he watches uh, like blockbusters, you know, sort of Star Trek movies and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, he says, you know, he takes notes and tries to figure out like how he could like improve on them. Like even then he's like looking for, you know, like what can I do with these, uh, uh, this intellectual property goes to USC, applies five times for the film program there keeps on not getting in he is relentless eventually gets in and then uh, once he uh, gets in he gets a summer internship with um, Richard Donner and Lauren Schuler Donner uh, who are this husband wife director producer team um, the movies uh, like the Goonies uh, and Superman is like what you would know Richard Donner from Lethal Weapon yes very good Uh, there you go you're on it and so uh, he goes in and he works there and he ends up uh, uh, this, uh, when a moment where he's like, I could work for Richard, who's doing more directorial stuff, but it seems like Lauren, and that was my original dream, but Lauren Schuler Donner like, is always working on stuff. Like, it seems like she's actually the center of the action, and so he like, goes over to her side of the office uh, where, and becomes sort of like the assistant to the producer. And so one of the first things that he's uh, sent out to do is he goes to uh, the uh, set of, and, you know, like, he's got, like, sort of, like, early things, like, you know, he teaches, like, Meg Ryan, like, how to log on to AOL when they're, like, producing You've Got Mail. (laughs) But one of his first real jobs is that they are shooting the first X-Men movie in uh, uh, Toronto, and he's, like, her eyes and ears on the set. And so what he does is he doesn't know comic books, but he reads every single X-Men comic book he can find. He turns himself into an expert. And so, you know, he's there, like, he's advocating for you can always make things more like the comics. Like, hey, 
it was like, let's cut Hugh Jackman's hair so it looks more like Wolverine. Let's like really like dial into that. So then, a couple of years uh, later, uh, you know, uh, after uh, this and after like they launched Spider-Man, um, then uh, they are launching Marvel Studios, um, and Avi Arad, who's uh, running that at that point, you know, sort of remembers this like bright young guy from the X-Men set, and is like, you know what, uh, he's an up-and-comer, like I want to hire him, and so that was how he like made the transition into the world of Marvel. You know, just sort of turned himself into a superhero expert. There's stories from friends of his that like they would be on vacation in Palm Springs and, you know, sort of like, uh, and Kevin, he's the one, you know, sort of sitting in the shade with like a stack of graphic novels saying, I'm doing my homework. I've got to learn these characters. Wow. What a dork. <laughs> I mean, rich dork. What a, wow, what a yeah. billionaire dork. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think he would like, you know, and he's not the smooth guy. He's always wearing the baseball cap. He's just very, very much like loves movies. I think he likes superheroes, um, but he's just all about, I want to, you know, like he sort of saw that like these characters are there and he sort of correctly identified like what it is that people connect to in them. And one of his like fundamental insights was uh, just the idea that, you know, sort of like the part of the reason people love Marvel comic books is the sense of anyone can pop up at any time. You're reading like a Spider-Man comic and then the Fantastic Four drop by. And he said, what if I, we did that in movies? And so you have this, like, that's how you get not just two or three movies out of Iron Man, but, you know, 20, 30 movies where all the characters are popping up in one the other and they all cross over and they all feel like every movie is a sequel to every other movie. And, you know, the problem with that is for someone like me who doesn't, who hasn't been there since number one, when I don't get it, I I miss that. So I feel like I'm missing so much of the movie. There there needs to be a chart of what order you should watch them in or something, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I mean, it can be really daunting, uh, which I think is, uh, and, you know, one of the challenges for Marvel right now is that, you know, sort of, I think people are feeling, uh, it's starting to feel a little bit like homework for some people. Uh, you know, like, do I really have to watch this movie? Is the only reason I'm watching it because it's going to set up another movie down the line? Yeah, just the um, Easter eggs is too much to keep up yeah. with. Yeah. That said, you know, like, if you're curious, like, there's a couple of, like, um, or, like two movies I would say are just very easy, like, beginning points. If, uh, and, you know, you don't have to do this. I'm not twisting your arm. Um, but Iron Man is where it all starts. And so, like, you know, you could do a lot worse than just, like, begin with that. It's a, a very entertaining movie, and Robert Downey Jr. is great in it. Um, and you've got, like, Jeff Bridges. Uh, well, let me interrupt, sort of, Gavin. Yeah. Your book has an amazing timeline at the front. Yes, it does. (laughs) Lists all of this, and it's got the name. That's where I got Kevin's name from. Uh, I was looking at the book, your book, and so, uh, you know, it's got the X Men, Spider Man, Daredevil, Hulk, all of the order and stuff like that. But you know what really struck me? Let me ask you about this: is I hadn't thought about this. How does the other basket of characters, so the DC world, and I had to look that up. That's, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, the ones we watched on the Super Friends on Saturday yep. mornings. That bucket versus the Marvel bucket, are these competing companies that hate each other? Uh, how, do, how does the two different buckets compare uh, DC versus Marvel? Set me up there. Sure. Um, so they don't hate each other. Like a lot of these people are colleagues. And uh, I'll give you uh, some brief, broad stroke answer. In like the last 10 years or so, DC has been 
financially successful, but nowhere as much as Marvel has been. And weirdly, considering that like you've got these like sort of like super friends, like kid-friendly characters, the DC movies have all been very dark and serious and depressing. Uh, like, they are, it's kind yes. of like self-important. And so it seems like a bad match with the source material. To me, anyway, these movies have fans, uh, but uh, uh, I, it always seems odd to me. What's happened just recently is James Gunn, um, who directed uh, the other movie I was about to recommend, Guardians of the Galaxy, as a good starting point. Um, uh, he was one of the star directors uh, for Marvel, and he has since gone over uh, to DC. He directed a movie for them, The Suicide Squad, and they've now put him in charge of the DC uh, studios, along with a partner of his. So it looks like he's rebooting it, and he's trying to sort of like learn the lessons of like having been in Marvel, um, and uh, also just sort of like like reviving things so that it feels like sort of like a more fun, like vibrant, like bucket of movies. Who and owns it's DC right now? Uh, that would be uh, the property of Warner Brothers, which means it's ultimately a property of uh, the Time Warner, okay. uh, like uh, like the, that like conglomerate. Uh, so, and they're uh, not. Let's see. Universal Studios is then not part of them, right? Uh, uh, Universal Studios is not part of either, although Universal uh, theme parks have the rights to some of the Marvel characters okay. because of the deal they cut a long time ago. But, but they, they also uh, have they the rights have... to some of the DC characters, don't they? They have a spider. Oh, wait, that's Marvel. Spider is Marvel. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Okay. Who makes <laughs> the DC rides? Uh... Where does one find a DC? I think DC licensed them out. I like, I mean, sort of like Time Six Warner. Flags has like Spider Man, yeah. I mean, Superman ride and Batman ride. Right. So I yeah, guess it went I, to I'm, Six Flags. I'm pretty sure that like Discovery, um, uh, the Time Warner doesn't own uh, those parks. I think they just have like a licensing deal uh, for that intellectual property. Yeah, that's a separate company. I've interviewed that guy before. I don't Ooh, remember his name. Okay. Um, the Six Flags guy? Yeah. I don't that's an interesting name. operation. I'm sorry, say that again? I said that's an interesting operation. It's, uh, you know, sort of like fascinating that, you know, like at ver when Disney was thinking of buying Marvel, uh, like the, the, they thought about it a few times before they actually did it. And, you know, sort of like one of the big incentives is, you know, like we can get these characters into the theme parks. They end up being like a really like important economic engine for like big entertainment companies. Sure. Yes. I mean, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Let's mention Disney real fast. I think one of the more interesting aspects of all of this is how George Lucas of Star Wars played in. And I think that from what I've heard is that he walked in and said, whatever Marvel got plus, you know, I mean, ah, yes. <laughs> you're, uh, yeah, you're uh, help me Disneyify this conversation, Davin, uh, Gavin. Sure. Um, so actually, uh, so what happens is uh, that, you know, it's Bob Iger at that point, and he says, like, we need to, like, shore up young men. Uh, that, you know, we've got, you know, sort of like, uh, the, you know, we've got kids, we've got them, like, uh, looping around uh, to adults. Um, uh, but, uh, like, other than ESPN, we are not, uh, like, reaching, uh, you know, sort of like the young men in our market. Like, what is, like, the number one way of doing that? And pinpointed, you know, sort of like, you know, like a Marvel at this point, uh, studios has like had several hit movies. They've got you know, sort of like huge swath of intellectual property. Um, so, and previously the uh, Disney had not done it worried that like the Marvel characters were too hard edged for Disney. Iger, uh, during his regime said, you know what, like we can just sort of like 
silo it off. It doesn't have to be like sort of like side by side with uh, Mickey Mouse. It can just all be part of the, the same operation. So uh, what he actually used to like help close that deal as he's courting Ike Perlmutter um, was um, he calls up Steve Jobs. Um, because he had, you know, not that lo- uh, long before, had a uh, you know, successfully brought Pixar into the fold, and you know, and uh, uh, Jobs uh, says to him, uh, "You just ask, like, look, is this another Pixar for you? Do you want it that much?" And Iger says, "Yes, I do." And Jobs says, "Okay," and he gets on the phone with Ike Perlmutter and says, "This guy always kept his word with me. Uh, you know, sort of like it's uh, been like a happy home for Pixar," and that ended up being like one of the things that really pushed like Ike over uh, to say, like, "Okay, I'm willing to sell." and get a fabulous <laughs> chunk of money. <laughs> wow, that is interesting. I didn't know about that and the Apple connection there. That does make it even cooler. So, Yeah. Yeah, and so and then from there, like it goes really well, and so then just like a year or two later, he can go to George Lucas and like do the same deal. Like, look, it worked with Pixar, it worked with Marvel. You know, we're going to treat you in the same way. So, yeah, he was very, very good about like identifying like the huge, huge properties um, that like really only a company like Disney could buy. I hadn't thought about. Yeah, there's not many companies that could support it and. Also, to give it everything it's worth. Why don't they just go ahead and? Why doesn't Disney go ahead and get the rest of the DC world? Well, I mean, uh, because it's owned by another huge conglomerate that has no interest in selling it, right? You know, sort of like why would Time Warner like uh, let go of that? Uh, so. Uh, you know, sort of in this case, like Marvel was in an unusual situation that you know they were they had had huge hit movies, but they were basically an independent studio. Uh, you know, they had a distribution uh, deal with, uh, I believe, uh, the Universal. Um, I'm sorry, Universal had the Hulk. Uh, they had a distribution deal with Paramount, but they're financing these movies themselves. They've gotten, uh, you know, sort of like a loan from Merrill Lynch where they put up 10 of their characters uh, as collateral. And uh, so they had this, you know, like money that they could draw on. I don't but know that story. Was, Tell me the 10 oh, characters uh, Merrill Lynch story. So this is actually one of the uh, fascinating, uh, this is like David Maisel's like a great triumph is like they're uh, getting it started. Um, uh, that uh, he said, you know, we need to be not just, like looked at the X-Men and Spider-Man movies. And in that case, they are licensing out the characters. They get a small percentage of what the movies make. They end up doing fairly well in it because they sell a lot more toys and pajamas. But he's like said, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. But Ike Perlmutter, although he's a rich man, doesn't want to put any money into financing studios, uh, a studio to like uh, make uh, these movies himself. So David Maisel has to promise him, we can do this without you spending any of your money. And so what he did was he put together the proposal where he basically mortgaged uh, the uh, rights to uh, 10 characters who at the time were... You know, some of them are huge stars uh, now. It's like Black Panther, it's Captain America, it's uh, the, the Doctor Strange, and uh, basically put them up uh, with uh, the investment bank, and it turned out to be Merrill Lynch, um, and said, uh, you know, sort of, if we, uh, you know, we need a $500 million line of uh, credit, and if we don't pay you back, you just, like, you own the North American film rights to these characters. Like, it doesn't, like, revert back to us. You could sell them to D.C. if you want. You can do whatever you want. So they really, uh, like, bet a huge chunk of the company's property 
saying that we're going to get enough money that we can make four movies and if at least one of them is a hit then we'll be able to keep going and like uh, we'll eventually pay this back as it turned out the first one was a huge hit that was iron man um but you know sort of like uh, if it it flopped uh, then like marvel would have just been a shell of itself they really mortgaged the future to make it happen and mentioning Iron Man, I do know enough, Gavin, to make this point. It seems to me that Robert Downey Jr., the Iron Man character, the, he proved the the model could work, I guess. And I think he was, from what I know, a, a long shot in casting. Just uh, hit, That uh, was the point in career when he was so low, just out of the 19th rehab or whatever, yep. uh, completely down. He deserves a lot of the credit in this, no? Absolutely. Like his charisma and his intelligence, uh, like all come through. And one of the other uh, things that you may not realize is the Iron Man character is a guy who's, you know, sort of like in, like, uh, in the comic books, he actually has like alcohol problems of his own, you know, sort of like he's taken like a sort of like a few punches to the face, like of life uh, as it goes on. So Downey was brilliant casting, not just because he's a charming actor, but because his personal story like sums up Iron Man's story like as soon as you see him on screen you're like oh he's that guy and so uh they uh, really had to like fight for his casting because like the new york office was worried like oh hey like what if he goes off the rails uh, you know like are we taking a big risk um uh, but uh, the uh, uh, the hollywood office of marvel studios said like this is absolutely like the guy and he should be like the cornerstone of what we're doing so gavin we are were super regulars at a bar at pf chang's here by the mall and went every friday night for years and dated there the bartender there saw the ring before my wife saw her wedding ring okay okay (laughs) and uh one day we walked in and it was strangely crowded and busy and stuff and we looked at the bar and sissy spacek and bill murray were sitting at the bar eating dinner and nice. the bartender waved us over and said, I've got two seats saved for you. And he put us next to Bill and Stacy. Okay. And, uh, they were obviously not wanting to be talked to. No one was talking to them. They were wanted to be alone. Right. And obviously they didn't want to be interacted with. We sit there and talk the entire time, paid absolutely no attention to them. And, uh, whatever. And at the end, he turned to me and said, sir, thank you. I don't know if he said, sir, he said, thank you for not talking to us. And my (laughs) wife looks at him and goes, why would we, who are you? (laughs) Did he laugh? He did not. He did not laugh. So (laughs) give me your favorite Bill Murray story. No relation to what we're talking about, but give me a Bill Murray story. Um, uh, one of my very favorite Bill Murray stories is a time where he uh, crashes a party in uh, Scotland. He's there to play some golf, and he shows up, uh, and you know, like, and he goes into the kitchen. He washes the dishes and then he leaves. <laughs> and I love the, like these Bill Murray stories where he just sort of parachutes into like somebody's life and then he parachutes right out again. You know, like he does something random and then like he goes his merry way. <laughs> All right. We're going to continue this conversation with your co-author, Dave Gonzalez. Why don't you introduce Dave for us? You know more about him than any uh, piece of paper I'm going to get. You, Ah. Gavin, introduce our next guest, please. 
Dave Gonzalez is a quality human being. Uh, he was the one, as we were doing this book, who uh, like sort of did the deep, deep research that, you know, at any point where I needed to know a fact about what was going on at Marvel Studios or uh, the MCU, I could always email him, and like 10 minutes later, I would have a three-paragraph answer. Um, so um, he's written a lot for places like uh, the New York Times and The Guardian. Um, he's uh, got an amazing podcast uh, called um, the Trial by Content, and he is... Uh, my, I'm happy to call him a friend and a colleague. So uh, please have a good time with Dave. Excellent. And Gavin, how do we learn more about you? Um, uh, you can uh, just uh, go check out, um, uh, the, you can Google me, uh, Gavin Edwards. Uh, I've got a website uh, which is called rule42.com. And if people are interested in knowing more about the book, um, uh, Dave set up a, a easy to remember website called the mcubook.com. And that should tell us, uh, tell you everything you need to know about like, where to buy it and uh, what's going on with us. The mcubook.com. Gavin, great stuff. Really appreciate you being with us. I had such a good time, Jim. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back with Guess Who? That's right, Dave. (laughs) We are back with Dave Gonzalez. Now I've been teasing him that Gavin introduced him and he has no idea what Gavin said. But it's out there now. You want to respond, please, Dave, to the horrible accusations that Dave made about, I think, mean, Gavin made about just every part of you. I mean, I'm sure they're all true. I'm <laughs> a very controversial figure um, with just a, a lot of knowledge about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What is it like writing a book with, and we should, I've not done this yet, and we really should do this. Um, I'm, I've been kind of neglected and rude. There is a third co-author as well, Joanna Robinson. She is a writer and podcaster. She's worked at Vanity Fair previously. So how does it work for the three of you? Did you divide it up and say, you do chapter, you do chapter, or did you just throw it in there and whoever did the best? How do you play three co-authors? <laughs> Yeah, Joanna and I, this is our first uh, book. Uh, We've been working together on a bunch of different projects, uh, but we were approached to do the MCU after uh, Joanna's Vanity Fair cover story on the 10th anniversary of the MCU. And sort of how it broke down, uh, ultimately, is Joanna would do the interviews, uh, I would do the research, and then Gavin would be responsible for the drafts. And once Gavin had sort of spit out a version of a chapter that we all was getting somewhere, we would go through the process of doing edits uh, over Google Docs or uh, in Word and sort of slimming the chapter down to ultimately uh, the sleek panther we hope that each chapter is in the MCU. All right. We agreed what the first question was going to be. Do you remember? Oh, uh, the return of Bob Iger, which is actually our book sort of leaves. Yeah, our book sort of leaves off uh, with Bob Iger coming back because we sort of uh, delineated a little bit about how the gigantic uh, push to have more content on Disney Plus across all of Disney's uh, production houses, uh, be it Pixar, be it Lucasfilm or Marvel Studios, which were all Bob Iger purchases during his tenure as CEO. He left, Bob Chapek came in, and he was more of a park slash business guy. So he continued what Bob Iger intended, 
but with a much more uh, dollars and cents, or in this particular case, subscribers first uh, mindset. And that led to what happens to Marvel Studios when it started streaming on Disney Plus, which it's like we took a year off for the pandemic. Uh, Disney took a big hit because we all know a whole bunch of their profits uh, don't actually come from the movies, but from the parks and from experiences like cruises you could have. Uh, so coming back, they were like, push it all onto Disney plus. Now we got, uh, a whole bunch of Marvel streaming series of differing amounts of quality. We got a lot of Marvel movies, uh, that were sort of more disconnected from the overall narrative than they were in previous phases. And then Disney started doing poorly enough that, uh, they had to bring Bob Iger back. And it is very weird, uh, especially since he came back, uh, sort of took stock of the situation um, laid off uh, thousands of, of people, uh, which was part of a constricting, tightening belt, a belt tightening maneuver. Uh, and then both the strikes hit and he gave that sort of, uh, in my opinion, horrible uh, Sun Valley interview on MSNBC, where he said that the writers and the actors were, you know, being unreasonable. And it's been interesting to see somebody like Bob Iger, which on the outset of this project, and if you read his book, The Right of a Lifetime, I have great respect for him as like basically a TV weatherman who was able to climb to the ranks at the top of Disney uh, while also still valuing the creators uh, that made the content. Uh, I mean, you could go back further, far enough. He did sort of cancel Twin Peaks on David Lynch, but that's, you know, a learning mistake. But now he's uh, back in the top position. Uh, I don't think he has the clout amongst the Disney faithful that he used to because he's having to deal with uh, downsizing rather than the constant growth that his CEO period was sort of uh, known for. And uh, strangely to me, like he seems to be in charge of picking his successor when he decides he wants to leave again. And uh, that didn't work out great last time. I'm kind of wondering, uh, isn't the Disney board supposed to be doing that um, with a mind towards what the business is supposed to be doing? Dave. So it's a very, very confusing time. Let me interject or inter uh, interrupt you. Why did he leave so quickly last time? So, you know, his, Number one job is to have a well-orchestrated succession plan. And I, the way I remember it on Monday, they announced, Hey, he's retiring on Tuesday. And on Thursday, we're announcing the new guy and we're not sure who it is yet, but we'll got it. We'll have it for you by Thursday. Get back to us. <laughs> I mean, it was, it almost looked like he got fired or caught or, I mean, what, what, uh, first of all, am I make, am I correct? in my kind of description of what happened. And then what do you think happened? I mean, it's even more confusing than that because he was supposed to step down years before he actually did, but he kept extending his tenure. Uh, at first it was to lock down the purchase of Fox. So he was going to stick around until that process was done. And then he went uh, an entire another year in 2019. Uh, that's from my experience, uh, was to uh, reap the benefits of closing out the Star Wars sequel trilogy. I got to go to that premiere with Joanna, and uh, Bob Iger was definitely there uh, giving uh, props to the entire Lucasfilm team for pulling off this gigantic project. So I think for him, he wanted to extend to see the end of the uh, Marvel Infinity War endgame run and uh, grab up all the credit for that. He wanted to see the end of Star Wars and grab all the credit for that. 
but it is confusing to me that there wasn't a like direct successor by the time, like, like you outlined uh, by the time he actually left. I think it's, it's like that position is sort of uh, you're serving so many masters and Bob Iger did such a good job at uh, outwardly spotlighting creativity uh, at the companies that he purchased or within uh, Disney itself. Uh, but what Disney really kind of has uh, underneath him are a bunch of people that are very smart uh, about numbers, about theme parks, about hospitality. But there isn't really anybody that uh, is at the second tier of Disney that can step up and, you know, have a good relationship with Scarlett Johansson or anything like that. That's a gap uh, that they haven't really been able to fill. So I think... Um, if the, when he does choose another successor, I would be looking towards a dollar and cents CEO. And then I would expect people at uh, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Pixar, and Walt Disney Animation to have to find that creative bargaining person that could work within their own little shell and then talk up to whoever's going to be running the company. I don't know anything for sure, but that's what I would uh, expect. As to why Bob Iger... Uh, like even wanted to come back. Uh, like, I feel like he has enough money, but uh, Bob Iger has, uh, you know, uh, up until now, an extremely good track record for uh, keeping Disney afloat. So I could see why they turned back to him. It's just some of the optics are looking bad in this uh, hot labor autumn we're having. Yes. Yes. We had an amazing <laughs> run. You know, did you, you think back to the, prior michael eisner you have to have a larger than life persona i think to have that job you have to have the chutzpah the personality the ego but also the elegance and politeness and the johansson ability that you mentioned uh you would know if that guy was already there as number two and if he was, he would have been stolen already and it would be leading someplace else. I think they have to go outside and bring in a star from somewhere else. That would be a great move. Uh, and that would also kind of uh, throw back a little bit to, well, maybe not somewhere else is in like completely out of Disney because Disney owns branches of anything, but maybe lower down than we've been looking before. Uh, especially if, you know, we, if the Bob Iger ends up having to sell some linear TV networks because that business is dying and sort of doubling down on, uh, either fast networks deals or more ESPN content to sort of keep their television content afloat. Maybe we should be looking somewhere on that side, uh, rather than in parks or in films, uh, because I think that's going to be the part of the industry that. Now that the, the writers have reached a deal, we're going to see some uh, rapid uh, fall off of what I think we had like 600 scripted shows uh, last year. Uh, that's going to be greatly reduced because we're at the end of peak TV. Now that the writers want to be fairly compensated and the actors want to be fairly compensated, the overall result is going to be just less. So knowing somebody that uh, has a grasp on that uh, would be a great successor because Bob Iger was really smart in seeing this coming and uh, securing a digital platform that eventually became uh, Disney Plus by 
probing uh, ESPN streaming technology at the time. And so he was able to see the paradigm shift coming. The paradigm shift just didn't happen in a way that was super profitable for Disney. Everybody got obsessed with subscribers uh, over profits. And that's great and exciting and makes for some good headlines, but uh, ultimately doesn't make for a good bottom line, especially while you're simultaneously trying to coax people back into your various other experiences that have nothing to do with movies and television. Are they making too many of these damn things? You know, and yes. I don't know from the Marvel world, but I, I got off the star Wars. I just couldn't keep up, you know, as an adult, I just could not keep up. And I'll tell you this, Dave, uh, you were proud that you got invited to the world premiere, I guess of the last one, I got invited to the world premiere of phantom menace the first one in oh yeah nine i guess and uh we were so <laughs> proud of ourselves you know we an atlanta company and lucas was one of our sponsors and so we were just on the fringe of the fringe of the fringe and so we had been bragging about it to our friends you know we were in our late 20s you know and so i you're you look pretty young still and maybe you can relate to to that bragging to your friends that didn't get invited to the Star Wars world premiere, you know, and we had to send in our IDs a month in advance. Uh-huh. We got special lanyards made up and they mailed them back to us, you know, FedEx gold or something like that. We had never even seen, I don't even know if there is a FedEx gold, but they made it just for these lanyards, you know, and uh, we got tickets, flew out from Atlanta and went and spent the night and had a big party the night before and everything. And it was Sunday morning at the, not the Chinese theater. Uh, it was in West Hollywood. I forget the name of the place. Uh, anyway, we showed up and there were people everywhere, but we were special cause we had these lanyards, you know, but there was a, a line like five miles long and we went up kind of to the back of the line and showed the people that we had our lanyards. And we were like, where do people, you know, with this go? And the guy turned to me and it was, um, John Henley from the Eagles. And he was sitting there talking to Danny DeVito and his wife, Rhea Perlman from cheers and that them and all of their families. And he looked at it. He was like, dude, you're behind us. You know, we thought we were the S, you know, we thought we were the total, you know, and, uh, we were there in line with Henley, but you know what? We signed up his kids as customers of our business. And so we win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. At, oh, first, during the movie, we sat next to, uh, Tony Robbins who complained the entire time. Interestingly <laughs> is a different person at a movie theater than what you see in the rest of the world. And then the rest of the game or the rest of the day, we played bum a cigarette off a star. See who could get a cigarette off of the, uh, most famous person. The winner oh, was nice. uh, Dustin Hoffman. We got a Siggy off of Dustin Hoffman. So that's fantastic. Yeah, my premiere experiences. Tell me yours. Yeah, my my premiere experiences have all been uh, more recent. So I might be able to like cop a vape, but I don't think I would have won a cigarette game uh, at any of the premieres. Uh, yeah, it'd be fun. I mean, to your points, uh, are they making too many of these things? Yes. Uh, the thing that's interesting to me about uh, Marvel is that uh, as once they did started with Iron Man and they had this bold claim, they were going to put all these movies together. We're going to make an Avengers movie. And then they got that to work by 2012. Everybody sort of realized 
uh, that you, if you had the correct creative team behind it and you had enough money to throw at it, you could make something that was traditionally not thought of as an intellectual property into a very, very profitable intellectual property. Iron Man, when that first movie came out, like I'm a Marvel Comics fan, but I could think of like maybe two or three Iron Man stories that I thought were really important. And there are other times it was just like, here's a character that's also there. Uh, but Disney had the foresight to, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Disney, it was Marvel Studios at that point, had the foresight to do a whole bunch of tests with kids and teenagers. And they really liked the idea of a flying robot man that shot lasers as a toy. So they're like, let's do the toy one first. They sort of, you know, struck it lucky with Robert Downey Jr. actually making like a compelling character. But on top of that, like it's the same thing that happened to Star Wars once you get it out from under George Lucas, who was under complete control of it. Uh, and when he did the prequels, George Lucas was more interested in forwarding the technology of filmmaking than he was telling stories about Star Wars. So when he sells it off to Disney and Disney's like, look at all the things that we could do with Star Wars. Let's do all of them. Uh, it's very similar to once uh, the Avengers property with the heroes that we, you know, slowly got movies over like 10 years about. Once that hit, they're like, well, what else can we do? So you get your your Moon Knights, your Miss Marvels, your Eternals, your Shang-Chi, and all these different lesser-known characters. It's uh, There's a certain phrase that I've uh, been sort of kicking around uh, on my film podcast, which is it's a zombie franchise, which is it doesn't need to keep going, but it will continually keep going until it is financially pointless to do so. And like we're talking on the weekend that uh, another Exorcist reboot is coming out. So I think this idea has spread uh, across franchise filmmaking that uh, the IP sometimes is more important than whatever story you're telling or what director you have, uh, which you could see Marvel battling with in between 2008 and now. How much control needs to be individualized and how much is serving the overall IP because that is the asset that means our company survives. Uh, it's been, it's been very interesting. Sorry that uh, didn't include a story of uh, me stealing a vape off somebody, but I don't want to, I don't want to out anybody. Yeah. Very interesting. I agree. I do think that, uh, your assessment is right. I, I feel like, and I am not the one who thought of this, that we are going to very soon have a, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker meets Iron Man day or, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that it was starting to feel stupid to the, uh, the hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people stupid who are right word. overdone, over pushed. Yeah, it's it's about meeting people at various places, especially with like comic books. You're dealing with a fan base that uh, has been uh, around for like over 50 years, uh, some of them, uh, or they're new and engaging with comic books as a medium. And then all of a sudden now there are movies that are adaptations of these things that you've already fell in love with. The Star Wars prequel movies hit the same thing where it's like we love Han and Luke and Leia and they're like, great let's go back, you know, two decades and show you a whole bunch of new characters. And Darth Vader is a whiny kid who likes race car driving and all these sort of things. And now, uh, you know, 
two decades after those movies came out, there's a whole group of people that grew up on those movies. And to them, they saw the, you know, quote unquote, original trilogy and the prequel trilogy all as one. You have uh, kids waiting for Marvel movies today that, uh, you know, weren't old enough to understand what Iron Man was back in 2008 or maybe even weren't born. And those characters are going to mean something different to them than they mean to me who saw this all happen. Uh, so trying to find that audience and serve it, I, I think maybe the smartest thing Disney has in its pocket is, like I was saying, all those other experiences, theme parks, cruises, hotels, because Which are I don't all know down right now. All of those are down <laughs> right now. Yes, yes, they're all down, but you can see them offering that type of crossover experience to you there. If you want to go to Disneyland, you can go to the Star Wars land and live a Star Wars adventure and build a lightsaber. And then after lunch, you could jump over to the other part, California Adventure, and they've got you for two tickets because of that. But then you can go to the Marvel land and meet Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do start crossing over. Like maybe there's a, you know, like a Christmas Disney Plus special that does something weird like that. But I do think in terms of theatrically released movies, uh, the IP, that might be seen as tainting the IP a little bit. Uh, there's more value in something like Star Wars with coming up with a baby version of Yoda uh, than there is necessarily with having uh, Iron Man show up, I think. But uh, I, it, sometimes Disney's decisions seem uh, very erratic when they happen, and it isn't until you realize that it was uh, one-fifth of a five-part uh, strategy uh, that just didn't hit storytelling-wise or creatively. Dave, as a young adult, not, you know, not too young, but you're not uh, my age either, you have kids yet i don't know okay what are would you go to a disney park yes i would but that i realize i the last one of the last times i was at a disney park uh i went with a friend of mine whose job at the time was uh legal counsel for disney executives at the contract level uh, so we were standing in line for what was still the Tower of Terror at that point. It uh, had not transitioned to the Guardians thing. And he was telling me, you know, like, you know, there's going to be a, you know, a young Yoda series, which I didn't realize was Baby Yoda at the time. But he just said young Yoda. So, yeah, doing a little bit of journalism. But mostly like when I go to the parks, I see the history of the parks. I'm just as much a Disney fan as I am a Marvel Cinematic Universe fan. Okay. So the idea that. The idea that Walt Disney was like, I'm going to build a theme park after building like a train in his backyard and then sort of suckering ABC into paying for it because they needed the wonderful world of Disney or Disneyland, as it was called initially, as programming is just like such an amazing business decision that when I'm in Disneyland parks, I'm definitely going not only to get the exclusive merchandise because, I'm, you know, capitalist capitalism but uh because you know I, everything that they do in terms of uh theme park hospitality is really only matched by universal these days so i'm interested in like the science of queuing and all that boring stuff so i would go to the park but probably not the point of your question uh do like childless adults still go to disneyland that is a very good question i know a whole bunch of disney adults who uh, would uh, would categorize themselves as content creators that are constantly at the park. 
servicing adults and not children. Uh, but I don't know how big of a demographic that is. I think that's probably the people they're trying to capture or that's definitely the people Bob Iger was trying to capture uh, with his purchases. We uh, write this in the book, but basically pre Lucasfilm, pre Marvel Studios buys, uh, Disney had a gap where it couldn't sell to young men specifically in between the ages of 15 and when they became fathers. Uh, at that point, young men would just abandon Disney products. And they're like, we need some way to capture these people. And Marvel and Star Wars were Bob Iger's solutions that uh, have been working so far up until now. Dave, I need an under a minute answer. How are we, how is Disney going to continue fighting its customer family base and still being seen as the most progressive company out there in America? How does that battle play itself out? There's a, a battle between the, the user and the producer. Yeah. Um, uh, historically, users don't win these battles, unfortunately. I think if you look at a history of businesses as large as Disney um, going up against uh, what the wants of their fans are, some of their very vocal fans, uh, when it bends towards what they think the fans want, we discover the company doesn't actually know what the fans want. So unfortunately, I think we're going to be browbeaten on that front as uh, fans of the corporation and of the properties. I think so. <laughs> and Dave, tell me about your podcast and the tight movies that you talk about there. What do you see cool in the movie space, the entertainment space outside of Disney and Marvel and what other cool things are you seeing? Oh yeah. I do a podcast with Joanna and uh, Neil Miller who runs a site called film school rejects. We do it for the ringer network. It's called trial by content. And each week we have a dumb pop culture debate, usually about movies. Uh, and then every, we put it to a vote for our audiences to, you know, which is the best uh, actor that started their career as a musician or what is the, the, the best Batman movie, uh, anything like that. So, I mean, Batman's franchises, but it's really a great way to enjoy the history of filmmaking. I'm always a big fan of when I can represent something from the early eighties. I've got some uh, poll wins for like the, the shining and slash the summer of 1984 with ghostbusters and everything. Uh, so I really encourage people that even though we have the streaming service and even though we have a glut of things like Marvel and star Wars, which are never going to stop coming as new products. Uh, you also have, a hundred years of film history, uh, that has some amazing things. Uh, and so, you know, if every time I see people being like, this new movie looks like, like it's John wick, like, and I'm like, that new movie is a John Woo movie. He was before John wick, like, please watch more movies. So ah, I guess my overall stumbled across one of our thesis points, Dave, the idea that <laughs> creativity is irrelevant. You just steal from the people before you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a very safe business strategy. Fake. Safe, safe, Faith. safe, safe business strategy. Yes. Well, you know, they had hotels a long time ago too. Those people were entrepreneurs yeah, too. So that's true. Dave, I would love your show. It sounds fantastic. I love playing those argument games, which is better Godfather or Godfather two. Uh, I think recently on one of the top lists, uh, Shawshank 
jumped up above uh godfather one and there was a big controversy on on that topic uh so what's your favorite movie of all time real fast my favorite movie of all time that's really hard uh but one that i uh is at the top of the list of my favorites and i would always like people to see is uh swiss army man uh it is a movie for adults it is daniel radcliffe plays a corpse whose uh erection uh helps a man get home yep <laughs> <laughs> Dave, i really sold that find out more about you follow you online find you on the newark times uh, etc yeah yeah you could follow me on twitter slash x whatever you're calling it at da7e and on instagram or threads or any of the meta properties at grumpy da7e because that's how i feel about social media these days and uh, you could check out anything about the book at uh, the mcubook.com fantastic dave thank you so much for being with us very interesting conversation appreciate it and uh hope you come back when the next book comes out yeah thank you so much jim and we're out of time thanks to both dave and gavin for our mcu deep dive show Appreciate you all being with us, and we'll be back tomorrow to help make a million dollars.